Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Car Chat podcast. And with me today, I have Philip White, or Pip as I call him, as I've known him for a while. Hi, Pip. Hello. How are you? <laughs> Good. We're sitting currently in a lovely lounge in Vista Heritage. We are indeed. So and welcome to our club room. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Right. So, so there's the club. There is. Quietly, there's, there's a club. We're, we're working out how we can form this a little bit more. Does it have a name? Uh, it does, yeah. 1771. 1771. So we're, we're for, for the listeners who don't know about Bista Heritage, we're, we're sitting on uh, an old RAF bomber station, a pre-war 1926 uh, RAF bomber station. And in the day, the RAF had their 1771 club, which was, it was, the, it was quite progressive, for the period. So it was, it was all sexes, all ranks yeah. and anyone could join. And it was in true British form. It was a tombola club. They had two bars, they had a couple <laughs> of pool tables and it was, it was for the old RAF crew based here oh, to, okay. to go and have a bit of a uh, bit of a knees up. So you've, um, you've revived it. We've reinstated 1771. And, right. Um, this is the start. This, this is the start. Club. Okay. So let's rewind a little bit. And can you explain sort of like who you are? <laughs> like, who are you? Who are you? What, why are we here? Like, what do you do? So, what do I do? Well, I, I'm the business development and marketing manager for Bista Heritage, which um, now encompasses a, a, a new part of the company, Bista Motion. Uh, so, we've just launched Bista Motion, and uh, I'll tell you a bit more about that in due course. But Heritage is is the UK's first business campus for classic car specialists, right? Um, which is pretty cool. We've been we've been working away beavering away on this for the last six years. Well, how long you've been involved almost, since... Almost from the start. Pretty much since from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, since the early days. Um, so that's nearly... That's over five years oh, now, wow. which has been cool. We've done a lot in five years. Um, but it, essentially, it's, it's, a, it's a business campus. Uh, it's a good-looking business campus on this, on this old RAF base. And six years ago, we, we came here and it was totally derelict. Um, 
burnt out, graffitied. Uh, local kids had shot holes in walls with pellet guns and all sorts of things. It was, it was in a pretty... How long was it left empty state? for? Best part of 40 years. So just this massive site, just completely empty? Huge site. So when we, when we got the keys... We walked into 348 acres of, <laughs> of, of amazing, the, the best preserved pre-war bomber station to survive in the country. Uh, and it's beautiful, even in its, even in its kind of totally decrepit, leaky, windy and damp state. It was like walking into a time warp location. Mm. It's, it's as, as you know, and as, for those that have been here, it's, it's cinematic. It it's, is, it's like walking into the 20s. It is a really cool spot like anyone that's been come along and we'll, we'll definitely get to this like you host multiple events and it's totally different to your generic car park meetup <laughs> whole other level whole completely other level. different ball game so we we got going here we, we we had a plan from the start to, to create this this business campus but also to create a focal point for the industry so in the classic car world these businesses tended to be spread out, farmyards, industrial parks, that sort of thing. And generally kind of quite hard to find. Yeah, always impossible to find. No you know, decent websites, very little social media, that, that kind of thing. And it makes it even harder, you know, particularly if you're coming into this world, you haven't owned a, an old car yeah. before. And you're a good example of this. You kind of started off in modern cars and you're, you're, you're on the slippery backwards. slope. <laughs> you're, you're heading towards, you've been a pre-war car before you know it. Um, but for, for those coming into this world, if you haven't kind of got experience in it or if you haven't been born into it, it's really hard to know where these specialists are. And so by grouping them, curating a site where you can bring in these like-minded, incredibly knowledgeable businesses, it creates this environment where not only do the businesses thrive and, you know, like any tech park or industrial mm. park um, does, but for the customer like us it creates this cool space where you can hang out and go to events and see this amazing site even if you're not into cars it's a, it's a cool place to come and have a look um but it's a it's effectively a classic car country club for, mm. for the rest of us and that sounds sounds exclusive it's not it's it's the opposite we're we're yeah, very anyone inclusive. can come okay there is a gate but that's for security yeah. and you can just come and have a look around tons of dealerships or and all sorts of Many, many, many small businesses of all sorts of sites. Yeah, so over, I think we're now at 41. 41. 41, so quite a, quite a breadth of, of knowledge and specialism, but everything from you know, classic tyre specialists through to upholsterers. You can have a full exhaust system made on site. You can have your race car prepped. You can buy cars, sell cars, store cars. Uh, it's totally focused. You can go gliding. Yeah, you can go gliding. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, well, that's that's a major part of our history. So, this site is is an old airfield. Fundamentally, yeah. this is you know this is all about aviation in in the in the Second World War, and so the airfield's still active. It's just under two hundred acres of, of grass airfield, and we've got a gliding club based here. They've been here for for a while, and we've got a lot of vintage aircraft as well, like Tiger Moths, mm. um, the odd warbird flying in and out, um, the odd bomber. This this was a bomber station initially, yeah. so. Um, People still fly bombers around? There's a few. Yeah, yeah. So there's the, there's the Battle of Britain Memorial flight. Okay. If you go down to uh, Goodwood Revival or Silverstone Classic and yeah. kind of big motorsport events, then usually you'll get, you'll get buzzed by a bomber or a Spitfire. And you know, those, those are the guys. And do, they, do, do people 
base their planes here. Yeah. So they're in some hangar somewhere. Yeah. 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 So we've got, you can come and have a vintage Tiger Moth experience here if you want. If you fancy doing a, a barrel roll in an open cockpit. With some uh, canvas on your wings. <laughs> exactly. Canvas <laughs> on the wings. Um, no, you know, no parachute. <laughs> you're strapped into this thing and you'll find yourself upside down quite quickly. That's like, exciting. Sounds quite good fun. I think the first time I came here, well, it, was, it was a long time ago. I don't know how long you'd been running for, but it was definitely... So you say you opened five years ago. Yeah, six, feels like so much longer than six that. Six years ago, we, we got the keys to the site. Uh, I say the keys because we, we were given a bucket of keys. Uh, none of them worked. <laughs> we had to completely start again. Um, but it, yeah, it was six years ago. So we've, we've restored the buildings. And in that time, through four phases of restoration, we've, we've taken these beautiful pre-war buildings and created modern commercial units out of them. But we haven't lost any of the character. And you know, you've, you've seen the businesses based here and... and yeah wandered around the site on events and you can still see where camouflage is painted onto walls and you know there's little stenciled writing over the top of doors saying boiler house or yeah. engine fitting shop and places like that so the history here is just it's rich as there's, there's such a wealth of that particular period of, of british Who's military it? history who did you get in who was the first company to come in Ooh, that's, other that's, than a, you guys? that's a good question our storage company i think were the first company uh, so Historit are, they're based in one of the, the C-type hangars. So mm. you've got A-types and C-types. And the A-types, to, to kind of put them into context, the A-types are about 37,000 square feet in size. So they're big. They're yeah. nine metres to the bottom of the roof structure. So they're, it's, it's like a cathedral. And, uh, and those are the smaller hangars. So <laughs> <laughs> the big ones, the C-types are 50,000 square feet. And they are just, they are vast. They're huge. They're completely over-engineered as structures. Um, again, in kind of tri- typical British fashion, you know, we're, we're going to build some strong buildings. And uh, in places, the, the floor is 10-foot thick concrete. You know, they're, yeah, they're which advanced. they, when you talk to the guys from Historia, they, they love it because having this 10-foot foot deep concrete or so, it's, it's like a big warming mat in the winter. Yeah. Yeah, it acts as a big thermal brick. Yeah. And so the, the temperature change in this, you know, I think they've calculated that the air, the volume of air in their hangar is 12 Olympic swimming pools worth. <laughs> of air. There, there was a time when, when they weren't particularly busy in the early yeah. days and, and they, uh, they spent a lot of time on Google, I think, kind of working out <laughs> some fun facts. So I think like, what's the biggest thing we could fit in here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, they had, in the early days, they had a, um, a Routemaster double-decker bus. Yeah. And they decided to put it at the far end of the hangar. And there's a little sort of viewing window where you can look into the space. Yeah. And so guests that were coming in and, and looking down this kind of vast, vast space, they'd see this bus at the end. They'd go, wow, is that, is that a route master? And they say, yeah, yeah, it's actually a half-size route master. <laughs> and everybody believed them. <laughs> no, I didn't know they made those. It's amazing. <laughs> it's actually full-size and it's just really far away. They're big, big spaces. Yeah, so. it's such a cool use of these crazy old buildings. And like you said, some of them are vast. What's do you get some? Um, Historic is one of the, one of the bigger ones. Hmm. Do we, do you, people use any of the other big ones for stuff? Yeah, yeah. So we Historic's sister hangar, the other C types. There's four hangers here, and the sister hangar is is our event space. So hmm. we tend to fill that with with crazy displays and try and find new and interesting uses for it. And so that's kind of during the working week. It's in use for everything from kind of testing 
the latest type of autonomous vehicle radar systems or LADAR. Yeah. I think it's LADAR. LIDAR? LIDAR, that's it. LIDAR. Through to photography and film use. We should Actually, we should be sitting in the middle of the hangar. We should. That would be doing free. this podcast. <laughs> just have it like really close and then just one camera from the other wall with these tiny specs. Hands out. <laughs> we should be there. So during the week, it's, it's all about film and photography and testing. And then occasionally it's used for kind of bigger projects. So Darkest Hour. Did you see that the film about Churchill with Gary Oldman playing? Vaguely heard of it. So Hollywood blockbuster mm. film. And that was part of that was filmed in the hangar. So it's, it can act as a massive studio space. Probably, I think, what the most I obscure. Saw Mac- I saw a McLaren launch video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, they fired their 600 new... 600LT Spider, I think. It's the Spider. Um, around inside so, there. So they fired that through the, the open hangar doors. At the end. <laughs> it was cool. They did some good stuff. But the... I was trying to think of the weirdest thing that's gone on in the hangar. It's probably the most obscure would be the blue whale that's now in the Natural History Museum in Kensington. Okay. So, you know, when Dippy the dinosaur went on tour, yeah. it's about two, two years ago. Yeah, yeah. Two or three years ago, Dippy did a tour of the countryside and they had to replace, <laughs> they had to replace Dippy with another skeleton. And they've got this amazing blue whale. Yeah. which they needed to construct an armature for the skeleton to support it. Yeah. And they could hang it from the roof of, right, okay. of the museum. And that was, that was built here in the hangar. So really? we, we know that not only can you fit 12 Olympic swimming pools worth of air in the <laughs> hangar, but you can also hang a blue whale from the roof structure. Nice. Um, so it's, yeah, it's pretty It's a multi, multi-use place. Everybody needs a hangar, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> I would love to have a hangar. It's a dangerous space, isn't it? Because you, you could just... When you've got that room, you can fill it easily. Yeah, and you'd just be like, oh, I'll just put a double-decker bus in the other end. And it doesn't look like, you know, just fits in. As ever, you, you know, you need an excuse to get a double-decker. Then. Yeah, and then someone's like, oh, where do I store my jumbo jet? Like, well, you can probably put that in there as well. <laughs> all, all sorts, all sorts. But they, they are amazingly versatile spaces. And Historia have filled it with 300 cars. Hmm. Um, and that in that hangar... I think the C types are about eleven meters, so the bottom of the roof structure. Mm. So there's a lot of space. So they could go up another, another <laughs> level. Another, yeah, <laughs> another level. I literally, think, I think two floors. Yeah, is yeah. the way. Yeah, you could. I mean, I, once you filled it, obviously, it's full. Yeah, we need more space. <laughs> <laughs> Before you came here and joined this project, you were involved. We, were you in the car industry at all? Yeah. So I'd, I'm lucky enough to kind of grown up in this industry and to have, I suppose, from, from a really early age, have kind of had the opportunity to mess around with old cars. And uh, I learned to drive in a, a 1935 Austin 7, um, which is first fairly rare these days. <laughs> <laughs> Not many people have that experience. And really lucky in the sense that it was it was a car which my dad had learned to drive in when he was younger, age nine. Nice. And it, it kind of just sat around in a shed, you know, in a barn for for his most of his life. And then when I was young enough to be interested in cars, I, I kind of hassled him until um, he said, "Okay, well let's let's get this running. Come on, let's off you go." And so yeah, I kind of I learned to change gear in an Austin Seven, age ten. Is that um, a, is that a sort of conventional gearbox clutch yeah. setup? So it's standard pedal layout mm-hmm. and a, i think that had a four-speed box that doesn't mean it goes fast i think the max speed was about 40 miles an hour <laughs> but the it taught you all you needed to know 
about cars because it's a really, really simple little four-cylinder engine. Yeah. Single carb. And the clutch, the clutch travel was about an inch. So you're either on or off. So that's what you're about, your clutch control yeah, and yeah. How, to, how to think about gear changes. I had a synchro mesh gearbox, so you didn't have to double declutch in there. Oh, okay. Um, but you had to rev match. Right. Otherwise, your gear changes would take about a week. This is a lot to learn for you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's, a, it's a kind of a baptism of fire, really, isn't it? And I quickly found that you could take the seats out and take the roof off and it went a bit faster. Take um, the, oh, the extra seats out. <laughs> the extra seats. <laughs> the extra seats. The, that, that weight you wanted to get out of it. And it was kind of, it was, it was nothing special. It was just a little mid-1930s kind of family yeah. runabout, you know, the kind of the car for the people, the original Mini. Have you still got that car? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, have, have I seen that car? Probably. Maybe. Uh, I don't know if you have. It's kind of, it's a really sweet little, it's called the Pearl Cabriolet. <laughs> <laughs> Just so, again, it's, yeah. it's very, you can imagine it in the 30s, you can imagine the adverts. It's a little steel-bodied two-door car with four seats and a, a roof which is a bit like a, imagine a vintage pram. Mm. <laughs> and that's that's what the roof looks like and they're they're just really lovely little things and it was it was meant for tootling around you know a cheap form of transport for the yeah. 1930s and we've we've had it for so long because it hasn't ever really been worth any money there's no point selling it yeah yeah, yeah exactly. you, know, you might as well just keep it in the shed and uh <laughs> so i dad learned to drive on it i learned to drive on it so your kid's gonna learn to drive on it. yeah i'd hope so i'd hope so so my my nieces have driven it and it's kind that's of quite there. fun yeah, it's a bit of a family kind of hack, I, I guess. <laughs> um, and it, you know, the tyres are, it's on 19 inch wire wheels and the tyres are about three and a half inches wide. Actually. Nice. So, in a, you know, on a wet grass field. Yeah, a little bit lively. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very long-winded way of answering your question, which I, I kind of was really, was really lucky to, to grow up in a, in a family where cars were, were important mm. and and old old cars definitely mainly, by my standard definitely old cars and so i think the the newest car i grew up with would have been about 1955 mm. i think and you're we, not 100 years old and, yeah so. exactly <laughs> <laughs> exactly and so i kind of i grew up with this amazing love for classic cars particularly pre-war cars and again that's that's such a niche area for People in the car world today... That's super niche. Well, it's not, but it is. Yeah, it isn't and it is in in a strange way. And you kind of... Unless you're sort of born into the pre-war car world, it's um, not not the sort of natural part of the car world to kind of jump well, into. Well, natural sort of progression, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there are a lot of young people in, in the, who you know, have pre-war cars and they're in that kind of world where they go off and compete and, and drive these things around. But... Um, you know, it's, as you say, it's not the natural progression. Um, I still haven't quite got it. (laughs) I I do quite like when, if I come to a, a, say a a Sunday scramble, so one of your big weekend type events, I quite like getting someone, either Pip or someone like yourself, who has knowledge of the older stuff to have a little wander around. And then you can point at stuff and go like, here's a fun fact about this car. That was the fastest car on the planet at its time. And you're like, what the hell? And then you're like, it did 140 miles an hour. You're like, what? Someone did how fast in that? <laughs> but it's always in something with, you know, no seatbelts, yeah. no roll bars, no, no windscreen most of the time. That's why it's so much fun. That's, it's proper, proper driving. If you want to have the most kind of visceral, back-to-basics mm. driving experience, drive a pre-war car. 
and you know, as I say, preferably one with tires that are three and a half inches <laughs> wide. You know, that's that's how you're going to learn about handling. And you know, the crazy thing about a lot of these cars, particularly things like Vauxhalls and Bentleys, you know. A lot of people don't know what Vauxhall did in the pre-war days. Yes, you know, I think most people are going, Vauxhalls and Bentleys. What do you mean, Vauxhalls and Bentleys? Vauxhalls are they Bentleys, in the same? They, they were in the same category back then. So Vauxhall were the first company to guarantee the 100-mile-an-hour sports car. And they built this thing called a, a 3098 in period, which is it's a big, thumping, four-and-a-half-litre, essentially open-touring car. Mm. They're either four-litre or four-and-a-half-litre, enough litres. And... They, you know, they make the hair on the back of your neck stand up with the noise they make, and they, they hair around everywhere. They're a fast car, and I think people have this, this sort of common preconception that pre-war cars are slow and boring. Yeah, they're not. They're quick. They just don't stop. <laughs> they have, yeah. no, they have yeah. no brakes. <laughs> and so, you know, if you want to learn about this kind of how to, you know, how to drive a car, you know, how to handle something like that, go and have a pre-war experience, and I guarantee you'll oh, come I, back. You'll come back. Beaming. I need to have a go in something something old. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. And it's once once you get into these these old smokers from from that time, it's very very hard to you know the, the bug never leaves you. It's hard to come back. It's hard to come back. And so I, I'm I'm very lucky to have given, sort of grown up in that world and and had that experience. And now you know having sort of worked through, I worked for a dealer for a bit in London before being here. I worked for an auction house for a bit as well, and kind of built up my knowledge of the, of the car world. And heard about this project at Bester Heritage very early on through some mutual friends in, in the car world. And just couldn't, and it was so exciting, I couldn't not be involved in it. Mm. And was very lucky to be here in, in the early days and to be offered a, a job here. And that, you know, for me, we, we mentioned the slippery slope earlier of, yeah. of car ownership. This, <laughs> that, that was the slippery slope. And, you know, I'd had fun in, in Austin 7s and uh, plenty of classic cars, but being here and surrounded by the knowledge and the businesses and the people that are based here, you, it's just infectious. Yeah, you, you, totally. can't, you can't not be excited about old cars when you were here. It's, um, it's intravenous. Yeah, 100%. And you go into all these different funky little places here, whether it's someone that's making vintage radiators or, you know, all these sorts of stuff. And then you go into the dealers. And actually, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure, most of the dealers here seem to have, like, really nice stuff. Like, yeah, there's a good mix. There's yeah, a good mix. So bit of a mix. There's there's five dealers on on site, and they all kind of specialize in their own area. Mm. And so that's either you know a particular mark or period of, of cars or use. So it could be racing. And so if you look at dealers like Robert Glover or Pendine, you know, Rob Glover is is all about pre-war cars. Um, he gets the odd bit of sort of post-war stuff in the odd kind yeah. of classic racing car, but he's a young guy. Uh, selling pre-war cars to really interesting people who are looking for that experience. And he's got this wonderful showroom, kind of really smart, modern sales environment. But the cars in there are just, they're bonkers. He's, at the moment, he's got a 1920s Becquet Delage, it's called, in there, which was a, a 1920s Grand Prix race car, sort of single, one-and-a-half-seater, yeah. quite single-seater. And the body looks like firework. Is it red? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's blue. It's got a sort of... Uh, sort of pointy boat tail to mm. aerodynamic body for the 20s. And that thing in period had a V12 fitted in the 20s, mid 20s, um, which was way, way too complicated for, for what it was. And it raced with that V12. And then somebody thought, well, okay, that's, you know, that's sort of, it's too complicated. We're going to make something, you know, make it a bit easier. Yeah. So they stuck a, 
Hispano Suiza V8 from an aeroplane <laughs> in it uh, on stub exhausts. And so when that thing fires up, it's spitting flames. You know, it's, yeah. it's bonkers. And again, the wheels are, you know, the tires are about five inches, I think. Uh, maybe, maybe a little bit more, but that thing, you know, it's, it's, it's fast and faster. That's, that's all it does. <laughs> and spit, spits flames and it's cool. Um, so, so Rob's, Rob's doing some really cool stuff in, in his business. And then you look at others like Pendine and Sports Purpose. Um, Sports Purpose, I think, you know, they, they're Porsche yeah. specialists. So they've got some, some lovely you know, RS in there at the moment. And through to, I think, a really original 356 racing yeah. car. It's, I walk into these places and until I've sort of, you learn a little bit more about the cars or whatever, you're like, oh, that looks nice. And then annoyingly, when you start talking to the people and they start telling you, whether it's like Robert or someone like that, because I, I walk into his his place and I'm like, yeah, where's all this rubbish old stuff? He's like, yeah, it's just some more rubbish old stuff. But, <laughs> but that, they put a V8 in something that shouldn't have had a V8 in it and it shoots flames and it weighs 200 kilos and goes 200 miles an hour and it's got no seatbelts. You're like, mm, okay, that's pretty legit. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So that car, that car in particular, because of the way its gearbox is set up, when you select reverse, you get four speeds in reverse as well. <laughs> so technically it can go, you know, it can do over a hundred in reverse. And in, in, in reverse. It's that's got to be some sort of record. Well, do you want to try it? Absolutely not. <laughs> there, but there's, there's crazier people than me that might. Possibly. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> But, um, yeah, there's some really cool stuff around the place. And it is that thing of older cars. They have all these stories. And you hear about how they were used back in the day and the modifications that they have. And it's not someone's just put a loud exhaust on because they want to sit on Sloan Street. It's like they were rallying and blah, 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 blah. And actually they want more flow and they want to go faster. That's I think you've got to look at older cars, particularly in the pre-war world, as like going to the tailors or having a mm. suit made. You know, you you went to go and order the car that you wanted to have and it depended on what you were doing. So you might have been going down Sloan Street, you know, in your 1930 mm. Bentley. But at the same time on the weekends, you wanted to go and do a bit of rallying or you wanted to smash it across Europe to yeah. get to the Mille Miglia or, wh- or whatever it was. And so they were very, they were tools. And if the, if the body that you bought the car with didn't suit you, you'd rebody it. Yeah, that's a crazy concept. Um, yeah, it's but no one really does it so much now, and it, it's seen as devaluing the car if yeah. you do it now. But in the time and that was just the thing back then. Yeah, it's just how you did it. And so I was, I was researching a car the other day, which which won. It was a, actually a Speed Six Bentley, which won at Le Mans, and had a sort of open Torah style. You know, if you if you picture a vintage racing Bentley, yeah, it looked, it looked like, that, like that, it looked like that, and sort of the famous look that everybody wants to replicate and the guy who owned it after the after the racing uh after it retired rebodied it to become a, a kind of his rakish touring car and he extended the scuttle and the bonnet so you have this amazing long bonnet and you're pretty much it's two seats and you're pretty much sitting on the back axle and, wow. you've, and you've got about 10 foot of bentley yeah. in front of you you know, the, the nose would arrive a day before you did. And that, that's just what they did. And he put in these really deep, sort of beautiful tool chests in the side and uh, painted his racing colours on a flag on the side yeah. and stuff. And it was just tailor-made. No other car in the world had that body. And uh, you know, Truly unique, yeah. It is unique. And, and back in the day, like the equivalent of an F1 car, whatever, you could just buy that and just drive it around. Yeah, yeah. So... 
that's I think a lot of the the older generation and the pre-war thing that they're, they're intrinsically linked because for a long time those cars weren't worth anything and you and for 10 quid you could pick up a four and a half litre Bentley yeah you know sort of 50s and 60s and 70s these cars were, were not worth anything nobody wanted them so there's amazing stories about guys you know buying a Phantom 2 Rolls and using it as their tow car <laughs> to tow a Grand Prix Sunbeam to race meets on weekends. Yeah. And that happens, you know, genuinely. And, you know, if the Rolls broke down, you just shove it in the yard and buy another <laughs> one because they were, so, they were so cheap. And it was an amazing world which created, I think, incredible drivers, unbelievable stories, mm. insane events, many of which still exist. And as you say, it's it's all about the stories it's all about the people it's about where that dent came from in yeah. whichever race and um, where the car was found and you know, there's there's a car that lives here um which belongs to my ceo dan and that car was sold new to eastern europe before the war hmm. and it was effectively pinched from the owners by the nazis when they rolled through the country okay. there and they used it as a staff car and the owner happened to be uh, he was conscripted and he was he was um making his way back through europe towards the end of the war as a soldier and found his car <laughs> abandoned by the by the nazis and so he just got in it and drove it home <laughs> and so this you know, this thing's got the most incredible story that is an amazing story oh, that's bonkers but what's the likelihood of just you know, yeah. casually finding your car the one that was stolen from your home taken from you it's yeah it's those kind of things which i think really give those of us that work in this industry a, a real love for what we do. It's very different to other areas, other jobs. You know? Yeah. Um, I might be wrong, but I don't think you can really fall in love with insurance and, <laughs> and banking. I don't, it depends about how you operate, I suppose. But um, from my perspective, this this industry is so based around the tales of, of what happened mm. to interesting people and interesting vehicles and times gone by, which make it so evocative. Yeah. Why do you think those cars got so cheap but also then start to be worth something now? I'd, I think it was because of mass production, really. They just made a lot of them. Yeah, well, no, no. So the earlier cars were all hand-built. Yeah. And, you know, very much, you're having your, your body tailor-made for your car, specifying this, that and the other. It was They made them in limited numbers. Yeah. Uh, so there weren't that many around. And after the war, you know, nothing accelerates mechanical and engineering development like war, mm. sadly. And so after the war, we had vast factories producing aircraft and, and you know, naval equipment and so on with nothing to do. Yeah. And so they all turned their hands to, to everything, you know, whether it was making schools or prefab houses or cars or bodies yeah. for coaches and buses and things. And so those techniques created a new era where we were able to mass produce vehicles on, on another level and create cars for, for the masses. And so you, you suddenly found... You know, Austin 7s, for example, were produced in you know, by the thousands yeah. and vast, vast quantities. And then you reach the 60s and you know, pe- people think of E-types as, as quite a rare car. They're, they're not. There's, there's loads of them. <laughs> and they made thousands of them. Um, not quite on the same level as car manufacture today. Yeah. But, you know, the, the advancement in mechanical engineering and production techniques allowed us to very quickly develop our cars after the war. And why why would you want something pre-war that was you know, harder to start and yeah. did four miles to the gallon <laughs> and generally coughed and spluttered if you didn't look after it when you could have a mini? 
which yeah. worked every time and had a heater and a roof and space. You know, that, so, and it was cheaper. So I think for a long, long time, there were a lot of other options which were easier, cheaper, warmer, better, safer. Exactly, yeah. you know, and so it was only the diehard enthusiast that realized you know, what these things were worth. Mm. And uh, now they've gone up in value, of course, because, because of the stories, but also because they only made a few of them. And over the 80 or 100 years that they've been around, a few of them managed to survive. Yeah, and then loads of the companies have sort of disappeared, haven't they, really? Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know, we'll, we'll be walking around and you'll be like, oh, that's a Alvis. What the hell's an Alvis? Absolutely, but Alvis made some stunning cars. And, uh, you know, right the way up until 50s, 60s, they were still making some some lovely, lovely kits. But nowadays you never hear of them. In, in the 30s, 20s and 30s, they were, they were pioneering the use of aluminium. Hmm. So I might be wrong, probably be corrected, but Alvis stands for Alvis, Al for aluminium. Oh, right. Is it the chemical symbol for aluminium? Al, yeah. Al, and then vis is Latin for strength. Okay. So they were pioneering these kind of strong, lightweight ah. engines in, in period. And they were well known for it. Uh, good things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that there's, you know, all these companies that come and go and then you compare. But like nowadays, do you find because of, let's say, this place, there is more interest? Do you feel like you've sort of cultivated more interest in, in older cars by making them more accessible, I guess. Definitely, definitely, definitely. So we're, we're on a mission here to, to bring young blood into this yeah. industry because, well, it's, it's something we excel at here. We're, we're lucky enough to be in the UK where we are essentially the centre of, of particularly the classic motoring world. Yeah. And this is where the skills are, this is where the majority of the cars are, uh, and the events. And if you want to go and have fun, this is the place to, to do it. And... The industry itself is is worth over five and a half billion to the UK's economy, which is very, yeah. very little known fact. Um, it's worth more than the entire whiskey industry. Really? Yeah. So, and it's kind of a sleeper industry. No one really sort of expects that. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that we've been good at for so long, and particularly with manufacturers like Bentley and Rolls, you know, they generated these amazing apprenticeship schemes, uh, and we suddenly went through a period where they fell off a cliff. And no, you know, for a while it was seen as a bad thing almost to do an apprenticeship. Mm. Now you want to go to university instead, which is daft because you know, they're they're both. Yeah. If they're not as good as each other, then you know an apprenticeship is almost better because you're learning actual skills, actual skills which are infinitely transferable and applicable globally. Yeah. You, know, you, you can you can build an engine in any language, can't you? Yeah. And so we're now reviving this in this country and apprenticeships are back on the map uh, not just in the car industry and here we've helped co-found two apprenticeship schemes in the last three years and they've gone from eight to a hundred apprentices in, in that time that's a good game and that's now forecasting to, to double so the interest is definitely there and i think through you know, the creation of this place this destination yeah. and our own events you know, it's it's an exciting place to be. And hopefully, hopefully we're encouraging young people to get into this world. And it's, it's an incredibly rewarding industry to be a part of. Uh, and fun. Yeah, well. it's fun. Huge fun. It's just fun. Like, cars are fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. And, you know, I think with the evolution of the apprenticeship schemes, we'll see a lot more of that. And to, to try and assist that, we've started a charity here called Starter Motor, which 
exists for the sole purpose of putting young people in the driving seats. So if you're finding it hard to get into the classic car world because of ownership or you know, the cost of buying a car, yeah. the cost of insurance, that sort of thing, Starter Motor is there solely to, to get people into cars and get them past all those problems and to let them learn how nice. to experience these things to go and you know go hill climbing in a in a Ford Model A or something ridiculous and or go trialing go mud plugging up muddy hillsides and learn how to break these cars as well as fix them which for the apprentices is, is yeah. hugely important it's not just a classroom based apprenticeship you need to learn how to blow your engine up oh, well that's fun like sign <laughs> me up <laughs> <laughs> we've all done it and I it's a bit of a kind of a a ritual i suppose isn't it? you know if you if you get into this world and as a, as a young driver yeah something's inevitably going to go wrong at some point and that's when you really learn how to <laughs> fix stuff now i i don't i'm not very good at fixing stuff and cars and things but mainly because i have modern vehicles and stuff doesn't get really go wrong but the things i have learned how to do has been when something has gone wrong then i learn about that item and then you learn a little bit more about cars or whatever you're like oh, okay, i need to change the exhaust oh i reckon i can do that unbolt this plug that in all that sort of stuff yeah. change brakes and all that sort of thing so you just need to break more stuff and you learn a lot more absolutely and i think it's it's usually a case of needs must so you're yeah. you're usually somewhere probably in the rain cold and wet <laughs> when something yeah. goes wrong and that's, duct tape. yeah and that's that's when you learn how to change a wheel or in my case i'd never replaced a fuel pump before right until i broke down in the tunnel which goes from the docks in dublin to the to the ring road of dublin nice and breaking down in that tunnel sort of late at night with lorries kind of going past you and they set off all these sirens when a car breaks down in there and it gets yeah. really hectic and so yeah i'd never changed a fuel pump before until then but you had a spare fuel pump <laughs> had a spare fuel pump we were going we were going on a rally across ireland and I'd done that event a few times before and various things had gone wrong and I thought, actually, I'd probably better right, bring, one. bring a spare one. And I, luckily I had one. And that was so that was on the way to the event. That was before yeah. we even got to the start line, the car broke down. And we got towed to a hotel just outside Dublin and spent the next three hours, kind of late into the night, fueled by Guinness, um, underneath the car, taking bits off it. And we fixed it. And we the next day we drove to the start line and then did three and a half days of rallying around Ireland and drove back Brilliant. to Brilliant. That's got to be again. immensely satisfying. Yeah, it's hugely now, satisfying. I don't necessarily want to go on a road trip and have to fix something, <laughs> yeah. but I can see how it adds to the memories yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Do you do and a you lot of the skill. rallies in old cars now? I have done, yeah. Mostly mostly endurance rallying. So, What's, what's so, endurance? Endurance rallying is long distance okay. rallying kind of over, over a number of days and... Endurance probably because you're in cars that are not, are not suitable for doing that kind of distance. But it's it's an experience. It's a hell of an event to, to do these things. And you you generally go as part of a team. So it's you and a navigator. Yeah. Um, or you can switch and share. And uh, we've you know, we've done them all over the place. So there's there's some really famous events like this, like the, the Milia Milia, which yeah. used to be a race. It's now uh, sort of a timed rally over yeah. um over most of Italy. And then there are other events, sort of UK-based, like the Thousand Mile Trial or Flying Scotsman, which are, again, which are pre-war. And you, yeah, you, you get really tested. You're doing three days solid driving in a car which was built 80 years ago. And, and you have to overcome all sorts of problems. You know, the car might break down. Yeah. You're going to fall out with your navigator at some point or driver, which, whichever way around. And you're going to get lost. You're going to end up in some pretty interesting places. But at the end of the day, you usually make it to the bar 
or whatever hotel yeah. you're staying in, and you are there with however many other cars are doing this event, and the camaraderie is incredible. And everybody's in different things, and you, you just, no matter what walk of life you're from, what your budget is, you know, whether you're in a million quid's worth of, you know, whatever it is, pre-war Bentley that has some mm. amazing history, or whether you're in 15 grand's worth of Austin 7, you've got common ground, yeah. and these incredible cars break down barriers. It's, it's great fun. It does. I, the more I do road trips, and the more I do road trips in different cars, the no frill, like the no problems, do it in something modern that's never never going to break. Like let's say you've got an RS six or something fast, whatever, is good. But you definitely don't get as many memories as doing it in something that's older. Like doing it in something in my old old nine eleven, which is by no means old by your standards. But like stuff stops working, or yeah. the windscreen wipers you aren't perfect. You drove to the Arctic Circle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How cool is that? Like that, hands down, was the best driving experience I've had. And part of it is the fact that you think it may not make it. Mm. And actually it was unbelievably re- reliable, no problems. I think that's it though. That's that's the part which some people find hard to comprehend. You know, if you if you get in the RS6, you're going to get there. Yeah, right? fact. Fact. You will you will reach the Arctic Circle. But the where, you know, where's the fun in that? Okay, you're going to get there. <laughs> You'll have more time when you get there, fine. But getting into a car and leaving your house in London and thinking I might not make it. <laughs> that's that's exciting, isn't it? That gives yeah. you a bit more adventure. And if sadly, if it does break down, you're gonna you're so off the path. Then you're gonna have an experience that you'd never have imagined. Yeah, you'd have, and good or bad. You know, yeah, it, totally. It, <laughs> and you come back from that you know, with this amazing story. And you know, I the only old Porsche. I say old. It's sort of older. I had a nine nine three for a bit. The only one I, I owned. I took, on my first road trip, I took it to the west coast of Scotland. Nice. And uh, ended up on Jura. So you're kind of two ferries away from the mainland. (laughs) And it decided to break down on Jura. Oh, nice. And so the the clutch cylinder just let go. And no hydraulic pressure. And so I could, if I let the car warm up for about an hour, I could just about get a third. (laughs) And so I drove all the way across Jura. So the first ferry and managed to get on and off that before the car yeah. got too cold to, yeah, to start yeah. to get. And then got onto the second ferry from Isla back to the mainland. And that's quite a long, that's, that's an hour long ferry, which was enough yeah. for the car to cool down. Oh, right. And I was the first car on. So I then had to hold everybody up on the ferry whilst I let the car warm up enough so I could select a gear to get, to get off the ferry. Um, and it then took me 18 and a half hours to get back here Oof. on, you know, a relay of trucks and that was a bit that's not so good that's that was not fun, fun. but it's a story and yeah. you know, i got back and it's fine and yeah and you've but, got that memory yeah and there's definitely a fine line it made me appreciate the, the drive up there even more <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yes. have you done the that brighton one that was this yeah yesterday um, this weekend yeah, yeah yeah so i i do that regularly and actually this year was the first year I haven't done it in about eight or nine years and it felt quite strange not, not doing it. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. And my my dad did it and a mutual friend of ours, Decky, mm. did it. And it's it's just I think if you want to go to the extreme because that's like really old, isn't it's it? It's really old. If you want to go to the extreme of old car events, that, <laughs> that, that's it. Uh, and it's it's incredible. And it's real kind of bucket list stuff. And you... So the, the newest car is 1904. That's uh, the newest car? The newest car is 1904. Oh, wow. And so you're going from London to Brighton, 60 miles, in cars which are over 100 years old. And it's proper turn of the century. The car has just been invented and we're we're going to try and get to somewhere sixty miles away, which is not you know in today's today's yeah. money that's nothing. Yeah, you, know, you can do that in no time at all, and you know you're, yeah, how yeah, do you yeah. get in? Sixty miles is done, but you do it in these things, and it's just it's, again you never know if you're going to get there to start off with, and you will you will meet the world's most interesting people, and you will learn things about motoring which you never knew before. And for example, the car that we we do it in is a Panard Lavassa. So again, another make which you don't hear of mm. anymore, Panard. I think it's a French company. I think they went out of business in the 50s or 60s. And uh, I could be completely wrong on that. But nevertheless, they were one of the, the French marks, which kind of was so far ahead of their time at the turn of the century. And so if you look at our, our car, it's okay, 1903. It's got clutch brake accelerator in the normal layer. It's yeah. got four forward speeds. It's got four cylinders. Makes twelve horsepower, can seat five people. Oh, uh, it's got four wheels. That, that helps. It's chain driven, and it's pretty much a modern car. And somewhere between nineteen oh three and now, kind of everybody went off piste and created some crazy stuff. And it, even Bentley created cars with the accelerator in the middle. Yeah, um, which you know. Why did they do that? I think it was to do with heel and towing, so you have more control. Okay, I, th- I think. That's that's some that's vaguely what I've heard. I think so. Um, when you're double declutching, which you, which you have to, it's, yeah. you get much better control on and off the brake and that. I think, but you know, if you if you forget that and yeah, hit the wrong pedal, hit the wrong pedal, you know, it's it's quite scary. So yeah, so the Panard in, in 1903, though they effectively built a modern car, which is extraordinary, and, and to all intents and purposes, what speed will this beast go? It'll do 30 miles an hour, and maybe, you go- maybe 35 down, downhill. The stiff breeze behind. Do you go on a motorway? You for the Brighton Run, you have to do. There's a small section of dual carriageway or motorway where you literally just go on and off, and that's just outside Brighton. That's a bit hairy. Yeah, um, I can. But have... luckily, it's downhill, so you, you, okay. are, you are going a little bit faster <laughs> than normal. But everybody's that stretch of the motorway. Everyone's aware of of the fact that old cars are, yeah, are coming onto the motorway. Because I opened there. up Google Maps on Sunday, I guess it was, yeah. and it just suddenly there was this like dotted line. 
Mm. And it said brightened it like it's That's all exactly set right. out and marked up. Yeah. Cause didn't oh, didn't someone someone died. Yeah, it's really horrible. There's there's a so sad. It's, um these these are old cars and they're they they can be tricky to drive and as with all motoring events, you know, things can happen, things can go wrong. And in this instance it's, it's an absolute tragedy in that the the couple who had the accident just got the wrong turn and uh, ended up way off route and went onto a section of motorway. And it was, yeah, it was totally sad. And it's, mm. for, it's quite uncommon for things like that to so happen. So were they just the driving down the motorway, but like 10 miles an hour or whatever? No, I don't know. I, don't I, know. I, I don't, don't know, know what happened. I, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but it's, it's dreadfully sad. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as I say, you know, in any motorsport, I say motorsport, Stuff happens. Is, it can, can happen. And yeah. uh, we've all got to be careful. And you... you some of these old cars are, are just bonkers things to, to drive anyway, and you have to be. Have yeah, to be I, th- I think it's crazy. Really I always find this sort of question where it's all very well people going, yeah, but like back in the day, they used to race these cars. And you go, yeah, but back in the day, we didn't know what safety was. Like, <laughs> we didn't have carbon tubs and like yeah. proper yeah. safety equipment. Yeah. And to now go and drive these cars, knowing the safety stuff, that exists now is different to driving them back in the day because mm. that was the latest thing sort of thing do you find that that plays on your mind a little bit it's, or uh, not really it definitely does and i think you particularly with the london's brighton when you're driving these these cars you you have to completely reset what you think and well think you know about safety and driving mm. and with these things you you have to you have to plan your gear changes from about 200 yards <laughs> Away from the traffic lights. Because you, you've got to think, are those lights going to change on me? Lights, you know, lights yeah. change quite quickly, particularly in London. Yeah. And in a modern car, that's no problem. In these cars, you've got to go down through the gears. In our car, you have to brake on the transmission with the foot pedal. And you have, sorry, on the, yeah, that's right, on the transmission with the foot pedal. And then you brake on the chains, it's chain-driven, with the handbrake. Right. Or vice versa, I can't remember which way around it is. And so you, it's a bit like playing the organ. You're kind of, you're trying to change gear. You're trying to change down double declutching and you're having to break slow down uh, with two different brakes at the same time and slow down. So you, you have to, you have to be so careful speeding up and slowing down these things. And you've really got, you've got to reprogram the way you drive. And that's, that is perfectly safe. But what you can't expect and what you can't sort of rely on is how traffic's going to react to you. Yeah. And I think a lot of a lot of modern drivers have no idea about double declutching or the fact that you're having to do all this stuff to yeah. try and slow your car down. You're not going that fast anyway, so you know you, they'll see you yeah. and get out of the way. But if they cut you up at the last minute, that's an yeah, issue you can't because stop. you can't stop. And uh, that's <laughs> they don't expect that at all. <laughs> They've got two tons of veteran yeah. car up, up their back. So yeah, it's things like that that you've just got to be really careful about. And it, it, arguably it makes you a much safer driver because you are looking so far ahead and you're planning your turn, yeah. the lights, the junctions, whatever happens way before you would in, in a modern car. And then you get back in your modern car and you still, you don't, you still are aware of these things totally, aren't you? Yeah. It's, I found that with driving on snow and ice and stuff like that. Definitely. Same thing. Like you're, you're aware, one, that the brakes may not may just not work full yeah. stop like yeah. may not just work so every now and then check that they work that sort of thing and then also like if that car stops where have i got to go 
Exactly, yeah. Where, where, which bush am I going to aim yeah, for? Yeah, or yeah, which yeah, exactly. am I going to go the less, less of the two evils can I aim for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny. I mean, there's, on, on the way into work for me, there's a particular corner on the roads near here, which is not a particularly sharp corner, but it's got a big ditch on one side of it. Mm. And if you have a few dry days, or hot days of weather, that road is going to get a lot of rubber on it mm. from people going around a sharp corner. And one day of rain... It's going to be like ice, but nobody seems to get their head around that. They do. I, th- I don't think people drive for the conditions. No, not at all. And uh, so, inevitably, every week there's a car. Oh, really? In the oh, ditch. Really? And everybody's fine because it's it's not yeah, fast, but nobody realizes that it's just going to be it's going to be like ice. Well, that concept morning. of rubber on a road, or I, I only really came across it first time on a racetrack when mm. you get rubber on the racing line, and it's just just basically sheet ice yeah and the more i drive fast on a track in the wet for example the more i treat driving on the road with i'm I'm more careful for sure but the number of people you'll be sitting on a motorway and you might be going it's like torrential rain and let's say when i had my m2 for example i'd probably drive quite slowly like 50 or something because it doesn't have it's not great great traction yeah. And you, it's just puddles everywhere. And then someone will go past you at like 90, <laughs> just like on the phone. And you can see them just going <laughs> through all these puddles. And they, yeah, they may be okay. But I reckon pretty much that car is just shitting itself the entire time. Like the dash <laughs> yeah. is just lighting up. And they're like, the steering feels a bit numb. Yeah. Like, just because your wheels are not on the ground. It's mad, isn't it? And one day... They all come unstuck, and, and if they do, I don't want to be anywhere near them. Yeah, exactly. When they try yeah. and break and realise, oh, yeah, it's it is it is just a matter of time if if that's how you how you try. <laughs> it's a lottery, and one day you're going to win. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, it's it's kind of mad. But that's that's the joy of of being in old cars, and that you you really have to think about what you're doing. That's part of the fun, and, and generally at lower speeds. Yeah, I think one of my f- probably one of my favourite pictures that I've ever seen. This is going to sound a little bit morbid, but is you <laughs> in a car? It was on a one of these trials. Oh yeah, um, were you yeah. in an Alvis or something? I can't remember. No, I was, I was in an Austin Seven. In an Austin so, Seven yeah. um, with Dexter, and this picture is this car ninety degrees, so like fully on its side but moving sideways, with the two of them still in the seat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> before presumably half a second later the whole thing rolling and. People yeah, flying everywhere. We, we came unstuck. It, it looks like we're auditioning for Russ Swift's <laughs> mini team, but we were. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was entirely my fault. Actually, I, I, I can't say we. We were Decky and I were on the on the last day, you know, penultimate day of a of a rally, and on a a section known as as one of the sort of special test sections, and we were trying to get around a go kart track in a pre war car as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, we were doing quite well. We were we were in this tiny little 750cc two seater open Austin mm. Seven, and we just we just about hit the thousand mile mark in six days, I think, uh, of, of this rally. And we were getting great guns, and we were, we were top of our class and fending off fending off four and a half liter Bentleys and you know the big boys in proper yeah. in proper cars. We we were in a car which was completely completely unsuitable for for what we were doing. But nevertheless, we I think on this event we'd just driven to to Edinburgh 
um, from London and we were on our way back down again. Yeah. Uh, and we were on our second lap of this track and I went around the corner, which on the first lap, the back end stepped out and we slid around quite nicely and it was a hot, hot summer's day. And sadly, the, the second time around, we were carrying, carrying a bit too much speed into the corner and the tyres, again, three and a half inches wide, just dug in and we somehow this photo was taken. Of an us, unbelievable photo. Of us, as you say, exactly that, 45 degrees. I'm determined and looking out of the windscreen. <laughs> if I keep looking over there, that's where I'm going to go. Get there. Whereas I think Decky is, is already diving for cover <laughs> by that point and working out where his parachute is. We rolled and we, we were bloody lucky not to... Because you were pretty much fine, weren't you? We, we, we had a lot of, a lot of road rash. And, okay. uh, so all of our injuries were kind of the same as someone coming off the, the motorbike. We, we were doing about 30, oh. 30 miles an hour, I think. Oh. And except we had no, no, no helmets, no leathers. Oh. And so I took quite a lot of skin off my arms and poor Decky took, took quite a bit of skin off his, uh, off his chin and cheeks. But we, everything else was okay. And we, we totaled the car. <laughs> <laughs> and, and very quickly ended up in, in hospital. Um, where the where the ambulance crew who who were fantastic gave me a bit of a dressing down saying that I was an idiot for not wearing a seatbelt, and I said, well, actually, this is a pre-war car with no seatbelts, no roof, and no roll, roll bars or anything like that. So we were thrown out of the car quite a long way, uh, which is exactly what you want to happen in that instance. Yeah. Uh, and so I said to them, actually, if I if I was wearing a seatbelt, I probably wouldn't have a head yeah. by now so I'm quite, quite lucky <laughs> that I wasn't and I'd always wondered if I'd be thrown out of that car if anything went wrong and yeah oh apparently you were I can safely say that you are yeah it, it works it's <laughs> a sort of inbuilt ejector seat yeah not not to be repeated I think um lesson learned lesson learned a lot of people who I've spoken to have also done similar things and said you only have to do it once <laughs> I, ma- I imagine yeah, yeah it's true doing it once it's true I definitely don't need to do that again <laughs> Um, <laughs> but you learn a lot. We rebuilt the car, and uh, it's it's still in use, and it's it's brilliant. Yeah, just it's a pocket rocket. Oh, good. And because it has small tires and not a lot of power and whatever, you were only going thirty so miles an hour. Yeah, that well, that one could do seventy, okay. um, which was but not around a corner. Not around a corner. Well, it's, it depends. On yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, yeah, it was, it was quite a capable little thing. Yeah, and uh, a, a testament to the kind of the change in mindset in car building from pre-war to post-war. Mm. So pre-war, everyone was about you know, bigger engines. The bigger the engine, the the faster it will go. And there's a great saying, which is "There's there's no replacement for displacement." You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, classic American line. Classic, exactly. And it, it's true for that period. You know, that's where you get the the crazy cars like sort of 14-litre Bugattis yeah, or yeah. You know, um, the Napier Bentley with a 24-litre W12 <laughs> engine and stuff. But they're just incredible. But then after the war, you've got a 750cc four-cylinder Austin 7, which, you know, side valve, it could do 70 miles an hour. Mine wasn't a particularly hot yeah. one. And some of them are really, really quick. The single-seaters are even better. But I'm, my, my Austin 7 days are done. I've <laughs> <laughs> been there. So we're on this site. You've now there's a whole bunch of businesses, forty something businesses on the site. What's going? What's the plans going forward? I know there's quite big plans for the site. Yeah, because you've got good whatever it is, three hundred fifty acres. Good question. Space. We're now we're now four hundred forty four acres. So big four hundred forty four yeah. acres. Yeah, big site, and we we're almost at the end of 
our sort of planned restoration works and sort of phased delivery of, yeah. of Bista Heritage. And we're at capacity at the moment, so we're we're building another eight buildings here, which are pretty much all pre-let. And are they um, are they going to look like the rest? Sort yeah, of yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, there's a building behind you actually, which is the home of Mercedes AMG F1's sort of mm. historic collection, what they call their historic collection. Which yeah, is, it's like two years uh, old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a bit different to, to my version of historic. So their building is kind of the blueprint. It's it's got sort of metal clad sides to it and. Uh, brick end gables and it's a pro- it's one of the historic buildings here yeah. it's called the field force motor transport shed <laughs> great name and so we've used that as our as our kind of our blueprint for the future and the new builds are same style metal clads historic color scheme but much bigger so right. you know, five to ten thousand square foot in in space and um they, they'll look obviously new it's sort of sharper lines yeah they're very sympathetic to the fitting to the rest of the site so we're we're in terms of the the historic importance of where we're sitting this i think i mentioned earlier this is it's the best preserved second world war raf bomber station to survive so mm. that's that's a big deal 80 percent of the buildings here are grade two listed it's a conservation area yeah and we have 11 areas of scheduled ancient monuments <laughs> so what is a scheduled ancient monument well they they are it's sort of a level above listed buildings. Right, okay. Where Stonehenge, for example, yeah, is yeah. a scheduled ancient monument. Um, they are monuments which have to be maintained and preserved in the condition in which they were found when they were scheduled. Okay. So that means for, for our buildings here, most of them are kind of um, trenches, bunkers, anti-aircraft gun posts, yeah. seagull trenches, mushroom pillboxes, all sorts of weird and wonderful, wacky defensive structures which the RAF built, and we have to kind of preserve them as, as they are right. at the moment. So historically, this place is unique. It's yeah. one of one. There isn't anything else like this in, in the world. And so everything we've done so far has been very sensitive and thought through in terms of the restoration and reactivation of the space, mm. Very uh, much like you would restore a car with race history and battle scars. Yeah. And you know, if it's one at Le Mans, you don't want to just give it a fresh paint job, do you? It's, yeah, you know, or clean it. Exactly, or clean it, indeed. But that's another argument. <laughs> Ron Dennis had a different view on that. I think. Yeah. But uh, it's it's amazing to see these buildings come back to life and we're custodians of this site. So anything we do going forward has to be thought through and sympathetic, as I say. So we're expanding heritage, but we've also launched a brand called Bista Motion, which is all about the sort of present and future of motoring. If heritage is about the past, then we're looking towards the present and future with motion. And the aim is to create the UK's first automotive resort. So this is a community of uh, like-minded businesses, like we, like we have at Heritage, yeah. but focused on modern engineering, EV, racing, skills, modern business enterprise, mm. and really addressing the same sort of problem that we've addressed for Heritage, but for those current industries. Yeah. So bringing together like-minded business to create a tech zone, but also an experience zone so somewhere where as an enthusiast you can go check into our hotel and spend a long weekend doing something different every day and that might be some driver training on one of a few tracks to you know sort of handling circuits right the way through to full brand experience so kind of going to see what your favorite manufacturer is doing next spending a bit of time in an area which we're calling a the Bista reserve at the moment so sort of country park um, the name Motion has been very carefully chosen for that reason because it's not just about cars and aviation here anymore. 
it's about lifestyle. And so that's you know, a bit of cycling, health and well-being oh, okay. and yeah. fitness and effectively the opportunity to, to bring your family and enjoy this space together. Mm. And uh, in addition to that, we're planning a bit of future tech as well. So modern engineering units for, for businesses, whether they're in Formula E yeah. or EV development and, and autonomous vehicles, that sort of thing. So that's cool. it's a really exciting concept to create a space where you can fully immerse yourself in the great automotive culture that we have in this country. Yeah. And uh, it's not being done anywhere else. And we see it as an opportunity to identify with the modern markets. So people are buying cars and using cars in very different ways now. And so whether that's configuring your car online before you press the order button, yeah. you don't necessarily need to pop into the showroom. And if you do go to the showroom, you're usually going to pick it up now. And also in terms of usage, you know, going forward, do people actually own their car? Do they, you know, is it the kind of zip car thing or is it yeah. shared vehicle ownership? Um, all of these areas are, are new and they're developing. And thanks to digital space, that's, that's a possibility. And so we want to be the hub where you go to experience that and work out how EV is going to change your world, how yeah. you know, new battery technology is going to totally change the way we all drive, that sort of thing. That's a whole other debate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, um, it's really exciting to, to be at the centre of that. And so we've, we've launched Motion this year. And Heritage remains and becomes a, a component part, if you like, mm. of, of a much bigger site. Um, we've got full planning permission now to build our hotels, so 344 rooms. It's, cool. It's a big hotel and that changes everything because it's, you know, we now have space for people to stay here. And spend time and people to host stuff. I imagine like conference type things. Yeah, not, exactly. Not a conference, but you know, exactly. experience stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but we're we're lucky because our our location, being on the edge of Bista here, we're an hour and a half from half of the UK's population. Yeah, which is astonishing. You know, that's you couldn't be in a better place geographically. Yeah, it's very here. good. It's very easy for a lot of people to get to here. Mm. Yeah, so we're lucky. So that so that motion is is our our plan for the future. And we've just launched our new website for that. So there's way more on, online mm. for, for people who want to, to read up on it and see where we're going. But it's, it's an opportunity for us to develop our events as well. So we've got a lot of historic events on site here, which are, are huge fun. Um, but we and can they're now look huge to now. They're big. They're big. They're big. We'd, in fact, when we, when we got going, we, we, started, we started the Sunday Scramble, as it was known then. It's now just the Scramble. Uh, we started the Scrambles as, as our open day event and the opportunity for people to come and see what we're doing here, see the businesses and see some of these amazing old cars. And I think the first one about 80 cars turned up. Yeah. Like a couple, yeah. couple of hundred people. That was great. <laughs> and yeah, yeah it's, it's tiny. We, we, were, we thought, this is amazing. This is incredible. You know, all these people want to come and see what we're doing. And the next event came around and it doubled in size and then it doubled again. And we thought, right, we're going to have to start putting in some infrastructure here and traffic management and yeah. catering and so on. So we charged everyone five pounds for a ticket and it doubled in size again. And it kept going, it kept going until we, this January, we, um, we held our first open day scramble of the year and we were expecting 5,000 people and uh, eight and a half thousand people bought tickets. <laughs> it's just extraordinary. And I think this goes back to, to what we were saying earlier on before we started the, the podcast and that it's the opportunity for those events nationally has, has exploded and we see it as the new membership, the new kind of club activity for people. And it's the scrambles are now, a lot of people call them their, their club event. Yeah. And it's a space to go and hang out and meet your yeah. friends, but also to see 
and meet new people who have got different types of cars to your own. So it's no longer the kind of the single market yeah, yeah. event, you know, just just the whatever the Mercedes event or the, the Bristol event or the Porsche event. Yeah, I love it. Come up here, meet, arrange to meet a couple of friends or whatever. We hang out, go for a wander around, have a coffee, have a bacon sandwich, peruse loads of little workshops, see some interesting stuff see some stuff that you're like what on earth is that that is awful some stuff that's amazing and then just like cruise off home and whatever but it's it's, it's a really cool relaxed. venue for it and we i think we looked at the structure of a lot of other car events and thought they're quite regimented yeah and i think for a long time people have been used to being told where to park which area they can park in you yeah know, depending on the you know, the size of their engine or the date of the car wallet. Or, or, yeah wallet yeah exactly all this stuff which separates people and yeah. segregates the fact that we all love cars and we all want to chat to each other about them. So the scrambles were the chance to knock down all those barriers and just say, park wherever you want. Choose your own backdrop. Everyone goes yeah. looking for the kind of the Instagram, you know, the, the photographic backdrop to where they identify with these events. And for a while, people couldn't get the hang of it. There's, we had a load of funny conversations with people saying, where do I park? And I said, well, anywhere. Anywhere, yeah. but where do I park? anywhere <laughs> and it took some time for that kind of relaxed yeah laid back structure to to take hold and since then the popularity has boomed and we're we're so delighted to be able to share this site with enthusiasts mm. and it's um, we've always had this sort of unofficial motto which is if you love it we love it too and it's very true and you you, you get the most amazing spread of vehicles um for, particularly for the scrambles it's all pre-1990s so everything up to up to 1990 is welcome within the display area yeah. of the site and you end up with multi-million pound ferraris you know, 250 short wheelbase yeah. parked next to an incredibly rare citroen 2cv or something, you know, something <laughs> which is just yeah, sort of yeah. a complete other end of of the and it's amazing it's great when you're walking around because you you'll just stick your head around the corner and be like oh wow or as i think was not the last one but the one before before Mercedes had declared that they were there, and they, they, I think they were keeping it all hush, and then suddenly they opened the doors, and you're like, oh, there's like Lewis's car. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. And they, so they, they're very, their presence here is very low profile. Yeah. And occasionally they, they do bring a car out for, for an event, and it's such a surprise. Uh, we love that. We don't, generally we don't, in advance of the events, we don't shout about what's going on a huge amount because mm. again that sort of adds to the, the structure we want of course we want people to know what they can expect to see but but it's nice to find things that you didn't know were going to be there precisely and it's a new way of engaging with an event where you can go and explore the place for yourself and there's no there's no barriers there's no you must have a ticket to get to this area there's no kind of people telling you where you shouldn't go it's mm. it's all open and inclusive and you explore and if a building's open and a specialist is open welcoming you in go and stick your head and go and chat to them go and see yeah. what they're up to and you know they might have some amazing kit in that <laughs> you, you just explore there's about 50 buildings here and structures so you can really spend a good few hours pottering around totally and the first time you get come here and probably the fifth time you come here you'll get completely lost yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like going it's, to ikea you're like how do i get out of it yeah, i've been here before I do this. It, true yes what's amazing about this site is that the the raf very cleverly designed the layout here so they in the 20s they wrote this literally wrote a book on how to build airfields of this type okay. because we're british and that's what yeah. we do inevitably our enemies probably got their hands on it during the war and thought this is excellent we know what everything looks like but nevertheless they they laid this site out to 
basically be a sort of trident formation, three avenues. Yeah. And so if you always walk to the end of an avenue, you kind of work out where you're going from yeah. there. And the buildings are laid out between these avenues in a sort of totally asymmetric village-like feel, uh, which had two purposes. So if you were based here and you were, all, all likelihood you were going to give your life for your country, you wanted to live somewhere which felt nice. And the RAF wanted to yeah. provide somewhere that you know, made, made the guys based here mm. and learning to fly happy. So it was like an English village. And you've got loads of sort of village greens and grass areas and trees. And, yeah, yeah. And it's beautiful. And the other aspect was a bit more functional in that having an asymmetric layout of the site made it much harder to hit from the air if you were trying to attack the place. Yeah. So you can just sort of strafe a line of buildings. It was it was, it was a little bit uh, wonky. <laughs> Higgledy-piggledy. <laughs> um, but it, it's very clever, really. We've got the RAF to thank for, for leaving us with such a Yeah, it's a such a place cool place. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the... The progress in years to come, for sure. Yeah, watch, watch this space. Okay, I normally wrap up these podcasts with five questions. Okay. So I'm just going to hit you with them. <laughs> Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think I'm, I'm very lucky to, to have done a huge number of, mm. of events and to have driven all over Europe and, and old bangers. <laughs> and we, I say we, my wife and I, have done a lot of these events together and we took the the kind of the experiences that we've had on on these events and created for our wedding day we created a wedding rally so for those who who left the church and driving between the church and reception yeah did you do it yeah you did it good man so we created a a route book and handed it to to guests who were interested in doing it and it was it was i think it was quite a good uptake wasn't it it was really good it's the first time i've actually seen this style of Root book now it, it made perfect sense yeah but there's all these different symbols for like turn left yeah at the tulips there church or whatever yeah. and yeah it's, it's it's really it's the most kind of obvious form of navigation yeah. and uh, so yeah we drew drew a, a tulip rally book for the wedding and handed it out to, to guests as they left the church and everybody thankfully everybody made it to the reception yeah there were no casualties uh, no one went missing so we did all right but that for me that's my most memorable event because it was it was kind of every, everything you know, we've we've loved doing with with cars. Yeah, um, rolled into a pretty friends, a pretty cool cars. Day, obviously, yeah. your wedding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That. Good it was, times. All, all your best friends in their favourite cars as well. So that's cool. Yeah, well, I think that's a good one. Right, five car garage, oh, unlimited value, unlimited value, and it has to fit into your lifestyle. That's about it. Ooh, okay. I think you've got to go on usage. So daily. I'm gonna go with an FF. Nice. Not GTC four Lusso. Tempting. There's something about the FFs. I prefer the look of them. Yeah. Lusso is probably a better car, but it's a daily yeah. V12, obviously. Mm. Yeah. I think that would Top do. Tick. Second daily. Yeah. So when the FF fails to start. Yeah. Okay. Once battery. a week. Yeah. Once a week. <laughs> Defender. Right. Old Defender. Old Defender. Everybody needs a Land Rover. And so I think for me, they are, we often say this in the office, they're, they're kind of a modern vintage car. Yeah. You, know, you, <laughs> totally. you pile into a corner not really knowing whether you're going to get out the other, <laughs> other side of it um, but it doesn't matter because if you go through the hedge you just keep you going you just keep going yeah, yeah you're fine so Defender's got to be in there that's controversial I think uh, what else? I mean they are awful but they are cool what else what else have we got kind of do you have some sort of sports car I think sort of track so I would go I'd have to have a pre-war vintage car in there. okay I'd probably say a four and a half litre Bentley right maybe a three four and a half liter so for those that don't know 
free will cars. A three-litre Bentley was was the earlier type of car in the 20s and they had a really nice light chassis Mm -hmm. Um, but they were slightly underpowered for for what they were lovely cars very pretty but you can stick a a slightly later four and a half liter engine in there and then you're flying a great thing and that as a as a rally weapon you can do everything with those cars you you can race them you can rally them hill climb trial go to the shops you just everything oh so so a three four yeah is is kind of cooler than a four because it's it's, a a bigger engine and a lightweight body so you, you'd upset the purists because you know, it's a bit of a hot rod. Yeah. Um, but if you go back to that conversation of tailoring a car yeah, to yeah. what you want, a three, four and a half is, That's a, more is, a, is a pretty cool thing. So I'd love a three, four and a half. So what have we got? We've got daily. You've got an FF. FF Defender. Defender. Three, four and a half. Three, four and a half. Um, How much is a three, four and a half these days? Uh, it depends. I mean, you, some of them... I've got a bit of history nowadays and they're fetching good prices, but you're looking at anywhere from about sort of 300,000 to, okay. you know, 400, 450, yeah, yeah. depending on what they are. And what so you've got two are. slots. Two slots. Got to have a veteran car in there. Right. Because <laughs> so, you've got to do the London Brighton. Okay, of course, um, yeah. I would have, I'd have to keep our family car. So right. I'm in the extraordinarily lucky position of being able to, to drive my great-grandfather's car. Oh, that's cool. Which is... Unheard of these days. Very, very, yeah. very few families have ever kept a car that long. <laughs> so they, he, he bought it new in 1903. That's um, amazing. Drove it back from Paris to Bristol and he got caught by the gendarme on the way. <laughs> they tried to do him for speeding. And he, as they were trying to book him, the heavens opened and this huge, this torrential rainstorm blew in and the police dived for cover. And he drove off. <laughs> and and uh, I think he lived, he felt guilty. And that was that. He felt guilty for the rest of his life. Um, but So we've still got this car, which it was last painted in 1904. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of crazy history. And That's cool. Yeah, I'd have to, have to keep that. So you've got one more slot. One more slot. Any sort of, not interesting, like a modern-ish, and I say modern-ish, I mean like 60s forwards sports car. That's a good question. I think I'd I'd have to or I'd be car, I'd be betraying my my heritage. <laughs> Ancestors would be turning in their graves if if I didn't have a Bristol. Oh, okay. And um so so Bristol was a family company for right. us. And they they've kind of descended into obscurity slightly now. It's one of those yeah. sort of British brands which no longer exist. And for a long time they made some pretty quirky quirky models and we owned the company up until about 1975, that's kind of mid, yeah. mid-70s, and sold it. And so from about 1946, 7, up until then, they made some some beautiful cars, but I'm, I'm heavily biased, yeah, so I would say biased, that. But yeah. And so I'd, I'd have a Bristol. And there's one car out there, which is kind of my, my dream. And that's, they, they built a, um, a series of Le Mans cars. Right. And they went racing and 53, mm-hmm. 54 and 55, and they did really well. So they raced in their, in their class, two litres. They came first, second and third in their class. Nice. Um, just one of the Le Mans cars remains. Yeah. And it's a bit, in its design, it's typically 1950s with a big fin on the back of it. Yeah. Quite aerodynamic in its, in its look and, and feel. It's kind of, it's not too, not as pretty as a D-type. Mm. Extremely famous. Yeah. That sort of sharky shape with the, with the fin, not as pretty as a D type, bit more functional, yeah, in its look and feel. But yeah, that there's one left, and it's in a an amazing private collection in, in this country, 
And uh, it does occasionally, it sees the light of day and it goes to events and things. Yeah. But that's with full two litre race engine in it. Yeah. That would be my, my final one. Cool. Cool. So there you go. Pretty quirky selection, isn't it? Yeah. That's, I can't that's, imagine that crossing over with that's been many other podcasts. To, uh, we've had an FF. <laughs> okay. Very good. Yeah. Okay. If you can only drive one car for the rest of your life and you're allowed like a 500 pound banger to put rubbish in or whatever. That's a bloody good question. I'd be that three, four and a half Bentley. Nice. Yeah. Vintage car <laughs> every day. smoke around that and every day. Every day. Fair every enough. Day. It's definitely doable. Yeah, I suppose you probably get rinsed if you turn up in a modern car around here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of that. It's uh, presuming that you, um, the fuel bill will be paid. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's unlimited budget. So <laughs> okay, we're fine. Unlimited fuel card. We're good. <laughs> okay. If someone gave you 50 grand, what's the best value car for under, let's say under 50 grand that you can think of? That's an amazing question. What would you say? Um, that is... Uh, I, okay. So I've... I, Answered this question earlier today because I was thinking about it. For me, I think like a, it depends, it really depends on which category, but a first gen M2, so 2017, like my car ish, you could get one of those for like 31, (laughs) 32 now, 20,000 miles for like 15,000 miles. Like do everything, cool looking car, drive it on track, great road trip car, just kind of does everything. I think that's pretty good value. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool. I think you could... There's loads of stuff. There's loads of stuff. I mean, kind of any 911. Any 911. Any 911. It's just something that you can use every day. You can take it on the track if you want. You can have a bit of fun. I I don't know whether we've... Because at the moment, everything... I don't know about the classic car world, but I'm sure. Anything that's not the the super special stuff has all taken a big hit in the last six months, really. And 911s particularly, I haven't really looked recently, but let's say a 993 used to cost nothing and now they don't cost nothing but i don't know whether they've come back down again because everyone's gone actually it's not the rs or the blah 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 blah. yeah the, the porsche market went a bit bonkers for a while didn't it but I, yeah. I think there's been a bit of a market adjustment yeah but as you say the kind of the good stuff always sells but, but yeah for, like some sort of c2s yeah yeah if you if you went for a 993 sub 50 grand you could have something which is pretty you know free water cools a bit more yeah. manual it's yeah, you could have a lot of fun. Cool car, looks cool. Looks cool. You can go anywhere in it, all over the Probably country. Probably won't break down too much. No. Yeah, yeah pretty, they're pretty reliable. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, Bonk. next question. What, in your opinion, is the most undervalued car at the moment? That is, that is an incredible question. <laughs> undervalued. What, you just look at it and go, like, that's too cheap. I had this conversation with someone the other day, and it was one of those conversations where we, we came up with two really good ideas. Mm. Both completely gone out of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> One of the classic ones people goes, um, yeah, and then they just insert whatever car they own right now. <laughs> yeah, like, that car, like, that particular VIN number. Which is uh, soon to be on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, undervalued cars. I'd, I'd, the, the geeky answer being in, into the kind of the pre-war world would be Vauxhall 3098s. So we're talking... What's our price point? What's our price limit here? Uh, no, it's just just generally. Just anything. So these they're they're rare. They're capable. They're every bit as good as a Bentley. Is this the hundred mile an hour one? This is yeah, first guaranteed hundred mile an hour sports car. And Vauxhall now everyone you know, yeah thinks of Vauxhalls as being sort of the small daily. These cars in period were proper proper out and out you know, balls to the wall mm. cars. They were they were fun things. And you know the the, the other 
similar vintage cars from that period are sort of way up towards half a million. Yeah. And these cars are still probably a couple hundred thousand less. Okay. So if you're looking at that kind of level, yeah, yeah, yeah. they are undervalued. I think they're, they're such beautiful looking things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's... Totally get that. That's a good Half one. the vice of Vauxhall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're obviously a bit more expensive. But yeah, undervalued. I'm trying to think of sub 50 grand undervalued car. Oh, no, but that's a different question. But, yeah. But no, yeah, okay. So you think these, the Vauxhall 19... Blah, 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 1398. 1398. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I think they're cool things. Now, that, to be honest, they are quite cool. <laughs> we need to find some footage. First 100 mile an hour car. That's, that's like a legit thing. Yeah. First guaranteed. Yeah. Final question. Okay. What is the most interesting car for you at the moment? So what do you find yourself like Googling or Auto Trader or I don't know what you classic guys look at, some sort of vintage magazines or something to find a classic driver, <laughs> to find yeah, old cars? Wow. We, you are speaking to someone who works in an office where the, the car and classic search is almost, there's a tab perma- mm. permanently open <laughs> on our screens. There's all sorts, all sorts of things. So we... This week, because of the London to Brighton run, we've all been kind of looking at what. Oh, what, right. You what know, could you buy to, what can to do you the buy run? To do the, to do the run? Or arguably, what kind of cars sort of after 1905, from 1904 to 10, hmm. that era, are in sell for a huge amount because they're not eligible for the Brighton run. So you yeah. get these weird <laughs> and wacky, crazy machines. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the most recent search. What's the most regular search? Just like right now, where you're like. I quite, I quite fancy a. So Bristol in the 60s mm-hmm. changed from sort of two-litre six-cylinder engines to 5.2-litre V8s, Chrysler V8s. Okay. Which they, you know, they, they kind of stuck some silencers on and toned down. Mm. And, you know, they were sort of... Civilised. Civilised things to, to burble around London in. And uh, yeah, they're cool. They're really nice sort of long-distance touring cars. And I'm quite tempted by one of those. So 1968, 410 with a 5.2 Chrysler V8 and then straight through pipes. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Which is completely against the, you know, the grain of what they uh, wanted them to be. But Yeah, but that's cool. Why not? For yeah, a bit. Yeah, why not? For a bit. Until you, until you go deaf and, <laughs> and you just don't have to worry about it. <laughs> Brilliant. There well, we go. thanks very much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome, Sam. Pleasure. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, hopefully been a little bit different from the kind of the modern cars. Yeah, I think it's a little bit different. It's been good. Yeah, good stuff. Well, thank you very much for coming. Oh, cheers. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.